Welcome. You're listening to the Malcontent News Russia-Ukraine War Podcast, the show that cuts through the fog of war and updates you about the ongoing conflict in Ukraine. Don't forget to like, comment and subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify and Google Podcasts. Hello, my name is David Obelts and today is Monday, July 10, 2023. It has been 3,421 days since Russia occupied the Crimean Peninsula on January 27, 2014, and one year and 135 days since Russia expanded its war of aggression against Ukraine. We'll be covering two topics today. Many people ask why the Ukrainian offensive is so slow or why Ukrainian forces aren't advancing. Is that true? Are Ukrainian forces not advancing? And is the current offensive going nowhere? Also, Turkey's president, Recep Erdogan, has had a frenetic 72 hours, going beyond leaning towards Ukraine and NATO, but reaching a place where one Russian official said Turkey is becoming an unfriendly nation. What's going on and how does this impact the balance of power in the Black Sea? If you've been following the Russian-Ukraine war, you have almost certainly seen the Russian video of a failed Ukrainian attack south of Orhiv on June 5, where a group of Bradley Infantry fighting vehicles and German-provided mind-breaching engineering vehicles were destroyed. Russian propagandists made sure the world saw the same group of vehicles from every imaginable camera angle for weeks. About a month ago, Ukrainian forces liberated eight settlements south of Orhiv and south of Velika Novosilka. Since then, there have been no reports of settlement liberated, and Russian propagandists have screeched that the Ukrainian offensive has failed. But has it? In a press briefing on Monday morning Kiev time, officials told reporters that Ukraine had liberated 24 square kilometers in the Bakhmut area of operation and 169 square kilometers in the Orhiv and Velika Novosilka areas. For some perspective, the entire Russian winter offensive from January 15 to April 15, and PMC Wagner's siege of Solodar and Bakhmut through May 20th captured around 400 square kilometers. Most of that territory was around Bakhmut. Ukraine has shifted its tactics, and those changes are leading to battlefield success. It just isn't yielding flags over cities and towns yet. To take a step back, we have 17 months of battlefield history now. What strategy has worked for Ukraine? The metaphorical death of a thousand cuts. When Ukraine is on the offensive, they do not attack Russian strongholds head on. They probe for weaknesses, bypass strong points, create salients that become technical encirclements, and force Russia to <clears throat> withdraw to more strategically advantageous positions, also known as a goodwill gesture. If you're one of our subscribers and been following the situation reports, you've seen how Ukraine created several small salients between Prayutne and Zafrochia and Novodonetske. In the last week, most of those small Russian salients collapsed. Were any towns liberated? No. Was this an important advance? Yes. Ukraine has advanced 8.6 kilometers in depth since June 5th and has taken the first Russian line of defense. The situation for Russian troops in Prayutne is difficult, and that's being generous. Once Ukraine forces a goodwill gesture here, Ukraine will consolidate its positions and start its next advance. It's a similar situation north of Solidar. Ukrainian forces have breached the first line of Russian defenses southwest of Vesele in two locations and west of Yakolivika in the direction of Krasnopolivika. 
The podcast description links to our publicly available war map to help you visualize the situation. Russian troops in Mykolaivka are in a deep salient now, but if they withdraw, it will create a third breach. Ukrainian forces will continue to push south, driving a wedge deeper between these settlements. Eventually, Russian forces will need to make a goodwill gesture. Do we have Ukrainian flags flying over settlements yet? No, but at a tactical level, these are important gains. The third area is south of Urahiv at Rabotin. Ukrainian forces have breached the first line of Russian defenses east of the settlement. This is another example of Ukraine not working on a head-on attack, but building a salient. Are there other signs that the shift in tactics by Kyiv is working? Yes, because there's been a shift in the Russian information space. A month ago, Russian propagandists were already writing the obituary for the Ukrainian offensive to the day. Russian President Vladimir Putin made ridiculous claims. Over 250 tanks and almost 600 armored fighting vehicles were destroyed. 14,000 dead Ukrainians in less than two weeks. Ukraine has no reserves left. Their military will now collapse. Remember that? Literally a month ago today. What's the new Russian narrative? The eight settlements liberated were small and unimportant. Ukraine's territorial gains now are just empty territory with no strategic value. Riddle me this. Why was the area so heavily mined if this territory had no strategic value? Why have Russian units been held on the defensive lines even after suffering 50% to 75% losses, as we've seen in almost a dozen videos from Russian units appealing to President Vladimir Putin for mercy? Why has Russia activated reserve units designated to protect the second defensive line and move them up to the zero line? These are not the actions of a military that has deemed these areas unimportant. We know our audience wants to read and hear about settlements liberated and see videos of Ukrainian flags being raised. There is a significant distance between each settlement in the areas where Ukraine is advancing. Last year, even before the podcast started, we advised our audience that an offensive in Kherson would appear slow for that exact same reason. As of this recording, there are 12 settlements where Ukrainian forces have reached the administrative borders. They weren't there a month ago. Fighting is ongoing either in these towns or on the edges of them. If you're waiting for the names of liberated towns as your measure of success, we think there's some good news that's going to be coming, and relatively soon. Two final thoughts. Kiev has shown a willingness to adapt to the situation on the battlefield and quickly adjust tactics to create success. And while the news of Ukrainian progress is not very exciting, Ukrainian forces are making steady progress in four areas of operation. To say the Russian foreign ministry in Moscow is going through some things because of Turkish President Recep Erdogan would be an understatement. In the last three days, Erdogan has called for Ukraine's membership in NATO, agreed to provide Ukraine with 155 millimeter self-propelled howitzers, officially signed an agreement to start Bayraktar drone production in Ukraine by 2025, released the five Azov commanders back to Ukraine in defiance of the previous agreement between Saudi Arabia, Russia, Ukraine, the United Nations, and the International Committee of the Red Cross. Didn't bother to pick up the telephone and tell Moscow he was releasing those commanders. Has called for a two-year extension of the Black Sea Grain Initiative 
and has hinted that Turkey will continue to support grain shipments from Ukraine with or without Russia. And just a few hours ago, announced that Turkey will no longer stand in the way of Sweden's ascension to NATO. Congratulations to Russian President Vladimir Putin, NATO Salesman of the Year, two years in a row. One Russian official in the foreign ministry said that Turkey was becoming an unfriendly nation, forcing Kremlin spokesperson Dmitry Peskov into damage control, having him say, we intend to continue our relations with Turkey. They are really multifaceted. We will continue our mutually beneficial trade and economic interaction. It's worth noting that President Erdogan also asked that the process for Turkey to join the European Union be restarted and expedited. So where does Turkey's loyalty lie? Have they suddenly lurched towards the West in Ukraine? No. Let's go back. Turkey was donating Bayraktar TB2 drones and munitions to Ukraine when it mattered the most. Let's remember, two Turkish military transports became stranded in Ukraine because they were flying in TB2 drones and munitions right before Russia advanced its war of aggression. When the Kremlin realized they needed combat drones because they don't have a program, they approached Turkey first. And the nation and the leaders of Bayraktar said no. Then Bayraktar revealed their next drone, powered by a turbine engine, that engine would be sourced from Ukraine, and that laid the foundation for the creation of the factory. When Russia pulled out of the Black Sea Grain Initiative on October 30th, Turkey, Ukraine, and the United Nations agreed to continue shipments. The Turkish Navy escorted cargo vessels in the Green Corridor outside of Ukrainian territorial waters. Three days later, when it became clear Moscow couldn't do anything to stop the shipments, Russia rejoined the initiative and demanded security guarantees from Kyiv. Until the Wagner insurrection, it was one of the weakest moments for Russian President Putin. Also in November of 2022, Turkey started providing Ukraine with 155 millimeter DPICMs, also known as cluster munitions. This was public information. People just seem to have glossed it over. Ukraine has been disassembling them for the submunitions inside and using them as drone-delivered IEDs. Now, on the other hand, Turkey has been accused of playing a little fast and loose with land shipments of dual-use goods that skirt the legal edges of existing sanctions against Russia. Turkey has also continued to support certain Russian electronic payment systems to prop up their internal tourism industry. Now, one thing is clear. Erdogan is playing diplomatic 3D chess, and he has problems at home. Turkey has very high inflation and very high unemployment. The nation's post-earthquake crisis is continuing. It's going to require hundreds of billions of dollars of investment to rebuild. While Turkey has one of the largest militaries on the planet, on paper, it increasingly needs modernization. Why did Erdogan release the Azov commanders? We're not inside his head, but the Russian accusation that Turkey broke the previous agreement is hollow. Why? Because at its very foundation, the May 12 surrender in Mariupol, brokered by the United Nations and the International Committee of the Red Cross, was broken by its architects just two days later. Remember, the International Committee of the Red Cross threw their hands up in the air days after the surrender and said, Russia's not letting us see the POWs. Russia's not giving a list of names and ranks of the POWs. We don't know who's been exchanged. And then they just went to, well... That's the way it is. Whatever. Moving to assessment. 
Erdogan has scored three wins in the last 72 hours. First win. A weakened Russia means that Turkey has more influence over the Black Sea. And due to the Montreux Convention, Turkey already has supersized control of the Black Sea. A defeated Russia off of the Crimean Peninsula and a friendly relationship with Ukraine enables Turkey to project more regional power. Erdogan has not hit his desire to turn the Black Sea into his personal bathtub. Two, while it has yet to be seen if Turkey will ignore a Russian withdrawal of the Black Sea Grain Initiative, and Russia has not formally withdrawn as of this recording, ships loaded with grain docking in Turkish ports are jobs, tax revenue, and commerce, something that Erdogan needs. Russia has previously left the Black Sea Grain Initiative, and did nothing as Ukraine ran the blockade with the support of Turkey. And Russia is weaker now. It seems incredibly unlikely that Russia would risk an Article 5 declaration or having the Bosphorus Strait completely closed to them in a military confrontation with the Turkish Navy. The other thing is, Turkey outnumbers the number of Russian warships in the Black Sea almost 7 to 1. Russia can't win that fight if they were to go there. And I'm not saying that they would. Three, we don't know what Erdogan is getting for no longer blocking Sweden from joining NATO, but Turkey definitely got something, and it's probably something big because Erdogan has attached big asks to stop blocking their ascension. In our final assessment, after the failed Wagner insurrection and the fact that Yevgeny Prigozhin isn't dead or locked in a jail cell, the world has seen that President Putin is a weak leader. Erdogan almost certainly doesn't want to break relations with Russia, but he is sending a clear signal that he is no longer afraid of how Moscow will respond. The rest of NATO and Ukraine's Western allies, especially those who are kind of waffling on providing their support, should follow his lead. Thank you for listening today. We know many of you are missing the Daily Situation Report updates, and I want to thank our audience for standing with us during this transition. You can become a patron for as little as $5 a month, get access to the written Daily Situation Reports and interim flash reports. There's a link in the podcast description, or you can find us by searching for Malcontent News on Patreon. It keeps you informed during this transition and backs the rest of the team. Regular daily podcasts will return with a human host. We're inching closer. And that's what we know. My name is David Obelts. I'm the Chief Content Officer for Malcontent News. And there is so much awful in the world. Please be good to each other. You've been listening to the Malcontent News Russia-Ukraine War Podcast. To help keep us independent, please consider providing financial support by becoming a patron. Want on-demand news in your hand? Download the Google News app and make Malcontent News one of your favorites to receive breaking news updates. Thank you for listening.